Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Tina Spring, as usual. And we are going to talk today about something that I think is a really common problem. And it came up for me this weekend when my cousin, who was kind enough to lend me her condo on Lake Erie for the weekend uh, to finish the final draft on my book, which, by the way, Tina, I have a publication date now. Woo-hoo! Yes, it's August 1st. The Beastkeepers will be out. So as soon as we get the final cover on that, I'll get that all posted. But anyway, so I was working frantically on my book. And she called me and said that, um, asked how things went. And I said, it went great. And she said she'd been visiting her brothers. And when she got back, one of the problems she's having with her Brittany Spaniel, Manny, who's 13 years old. Now, Manny has always been a reactive dog. He's been reactive to other dogs and he's reactive to people. He's a barker. But Lynn and her husband, Mark, who died in the fall, were able to, to manage him fairly well over the years redirect him or whatever. But since Mark died, Lynn has found it more challenging to manage his behavior and hasn't been working with him as much because she's been dealing with a whole lot of other things, including health issues of her own. So what she told me was that Manny is barking more and he's less responsive to being redirected. And instead of barking at somebody, it might have been they had to be, you know, 15 to 20 feet and he might bark at somebody. Now it's well over a block away and the dog will start barking at a person. And she used to be able to say if she saw somebody come in the street, come on, Manny, let's go inside. And he would trot inside and now he won't do that. And he's just a lot more reactive overall. So I said, let me talk to Tina. And I was thinking, because one, (laughs) Tina's brilliant about these kinds of things. And two, what a great podcast topic, because I think other people probably are dealing with the fact that their dogs get barky. And one of the things that I was thinking about Manny, and we were talking about this before the show, was this has been a problem that Manny has had. Manny is now an older dog. He's 13. And so what is it about being an older dog that may be exacerbating this problem. I know that with our dog Rebel, who was just a really easygoing guy, but as he got older, things like loud kids or thunderstorms and stuff just seemed to unnerve him. And he needed more emotional support from me to manage things that had just sort of rolled off his very ample back in the past. And so I think that that might be part of what's going on with Manny. But What I wanted to do, and I think Tina agrees with me, we kind of wanted to address the barking dog issue, but we also wanted to address all kinds of things in relationship to that, including age and changes in the dog and changes in environment and that kind of stuff. So Tina, there you go. That's your intro, rather long and and probably obtuse. But anyway, it's your intro. So now you get to take off with a brilliant dissertation on why dogs bark. No pressure. None. None. No pressure. No, no, no pressure at all. <laughs> so I think this is a, a call lots of trainers get. Um, I, I would not say that this is an uncommon situation. I do think we tend to um, sometimes get more frustrated with our dogs that are starting to age. Because we feel like, why are you being so naughty now? Like you're past your puppy stage. 
And we tend to be a little less curious sometimes about changes to the dog. Like, does the dog have pain that now barking at other dogs hurts? Or is it vision? Is it straight cognition? Is it hearing? Like, what kinds of things are changing for the dog? But also, what kinds of things are changing in the household and with the handler? So I think the the customers and, and friends and family members I've had who have lost a spouse, they're a little anxious that first year, right? Um, it's disorienting. And so a dog might um, start overstating their case a little bit if the dog's perception is all these situations are making my mom really uncomfortable when it could be that the barking itself is making mom really uncomfortable. And so often the more the dog is escalating the barking, um, just our natural response is to try to tap that down and put more pressure on the dog. So for some people, that becomes, you know, telling the dog to sit and watch me or look at me, or it might be they're using um, equipment that maybe is a little less pleasant, or maybe they're just a little less patient and are moving differently um, in ways that are maybe giving the dog more pressure. So I think as our, if our dog starts to escalate their response to things for whatever reason, I think a natural and normal human response one maybe that's not ideal, is to escalate our response to the situation. So we get more frustrated, more exasperated, maybe. We might be a little bit physically less kind. We might switch to equipment that's a little bit less kind. I mean, we might be really frustrated and maybe even embarrassed by our dog. We're not really sure what to do. Um, and dogs are kind of like little kids. They're a little egocentric. So they start, I think, to internalize like, well, when I see that dog, it makes my mom do mean stuff and she's disappointed in me. So I'm going to yell at dogs that are two blocks away instead of dogs that are 50 feet away. So they know to stay away from my mom where, you know, the dog doesn't understand that their barking is actually the part that's making mom a little more less Because uncom- my mom less loves me. So why would my barking bother her? Right. And, and in fact, right. I, I'm here to, to let her know that there's a dog over there. So I, I don't understand why this would be upsetting to her because it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Right. And, and I totally um, understand in a way that maybe I didn't before I'm going through some health stuff right now. And there's just things I don't have the bandwidth or the energy to do. Right. I know I should do it, but it, I'm tired and I don't feel well. And I don't, I don't really want to. So well, think fortunately, about even when you had just, a, just a cold, you know, how many things you don't want to do when you have a cold. I got to tell you, my house does not get dusted when I have a cold because the last thing I want to do is clean. So if right. if things that, that I do on a regular basis that, that don't require any angst from me get put on the shelf, anything that causes me angst tends to escalate perhaps my response. Either is like either it escalates it in the sense of I respond more strongly, or it de-escalates it. The point is I can't handle this, so I'm just going to shut down and ignore it. Right. So what I would say that the easiest solution that I've found, um, maybe not solutions, probably the wrong wrong way to do it. I, I really like Leslie McDivitt's look at that, and I tend to do it with a food scatter. So I start with a food scatter. So just teaching the dog that randomly, I just pick a word. Um, in my case, it's scatter. It can be ollie, ollie, oxen free. I don't care. 
I would choose something that the dog thinks is funny. So, um, you know, a 13 year old Brittany probably thinks some things are funny. You could probably be like, where's the quail? And he would be like, let me look for quail by all means. But I would make that a cue. So it's, you're not saying stop barking means scatter. It's like, find the birdie, right? And we throw a handful of high value reinforcers in teeny tiny pieces on the floor or, or on, in the grass or snow, because you're in Ohio, and do that in the absence of any uh, stimuli that the dog is being reactive about. So we're not going to try right out of the you know, we're not going to open the barn doors and while the dog is losing his marbles, try this because it won't work. What you want to do is build drive for the food scatter so that the dog's brain has something kind of front loaded to pull his brain away. And one of the things why you have this, this cue, which is going to be different than other cues, right? Especially if you've used find it and you've had mixed success. If you choose a new cue and you start conditioning your dog to respond to this cue, when you say, where's the quail? The first thing they're going to do is look down. Like, where? It's got to be here somewhere. And so you've now created a new cue that causes your dog to look down, to look for something that you've scattered. And it doesn't bring any baggage with it because you're training a new cue, which I think is also important. And it does some other things too. It activates that seeking part of the brain. So you get a dopamine release. What dopamine does is it prepares the brain and the body for a pleasurable experience, right? So it front loads your dog to go know something good's happening, which is not what's happening when the dog is seeing other dogs or people on a walk. So we're going to have a way to maybe preempt that or balance it a little bit. Likewise, we're tipping Um, We're increasing airflow over the brain, literally cooling it off as the dog is sniffing and using that seeking part of the brain to find food. And if he is a typical 13-year-old Brittany Spaniel, that little nubbin will be a wagon, right? This will be a dog who is signaling to the rest of the dog world, I'm doing something fun with my mom. I'm not talking to you. So many times I think dogs that are nervous about other dogs that maybe are starting to have some physical changes, cognition, vision, hearing, mobility, start to build a case against other dogs, especially if other dogs on the walk tend to be a little bit trash talky or too excited and interested in them. They're like preemptively trash talking that other dog. I've never seen a dog trash talk a dog who's eating ham out of the grass. Right. Right. Because that dog's body language is like, I'm busy. I got stuff going on. I'm doing stuff with my mom. And even the most trash talky dog goes, well, there's no sense barking at them. He's hanging out with his mom eating ham. Right. Well, the other thing I was going to say is that what you also want to do with this, what also happens when you do this, is you sort of preempt that falling into the sympathetic nerve system, which is the highly reactive nerve system, and you're engaging the parasympathetic nerve system by the sniffing and the chewing and the eating and all and the dopamine release that all is going to bring him into the calming down nervous system, which is what you really want to have in your dog. Because once the sort of the, the, uh, the sympathetic nervous tr- system is triggered and the reaction is triggered, then you've left your forebrain and you're in your reactive brain and it's going to be much, much harder to turn them around, which is why you need to condition and practice this before the big event 
so that the dog has something. Oh, I know what we're doing, and this is really fun, and I'm going to engage with that as opposed to lose my brain. Right. So one thing I would say to your sweet cousin is, you know, can she grab some string cheese or hot dog bits when she goes for her walk? If she doesn't have the bandwidth, if she's just having a day where she doesn't feel like dealing with it, then just walk him in the backyard, right? She could do food scatters in the backyard and tire out that Brittany in no time flat and there's no barking, right? He's And he's being classically conditioned that whatever's going on outside that yard, like, is not a problem. Good things happen when that's happening. So one, I would absolve her from the stress of I, in order to be a good person, I have to take this dog who's making me a nervous wreck for a walk Two, I would, if she's going to do that, I would add very high value reinforcement, typically in the form of food, but some dogs will work for other things. Maybe he loves a squeaky tennis ball. I don't know. And then I would also have her practice the things that worked in the past when there are not other people and dogs, because those things made sense to her dog in the past. It worked for her and him. Instead of rebuilding the mousetrap, let's see if we can't get the mousetrap that was working, working better for them. And so just adding food, practicing it, again, in the living room, in the hallway, in the driveway, in a parking lot where there are no people and other dogs so that he gets back into the practice of her doing it versus um, her, her sweet husband. So giving the dog those training wheels a little bit back. So, because like we start to become more childlike as we age um, and we require more support and caretaking our dogs do too. Yes, and those are great points, and I will certainly pass those on to her. And I'm going to be seeing her in just a couple of weeks anyway because there's a quilt show up near her that she that she and I go to. In fact, I had a quilt in last year or the year before. Oh, wow, nice. So the, the, the only other thing that I would add is she could condition a new um, marker cue. So that sounds really complicated. It's not. So for example, she could get a referee's whistle. I can't whistle. So I use a referee's whistle, but I do a little toot and give the dog bunches and bunches and bunches and bunches of itty bitty pieces. A hot dog dog thinks it's brilliant. And then I walk away and then I toot the whistle again, bunches and bunches and bunches and bunches of piece of hot dog, super, super fast. What a brilliant dog you are all done. Walk away. So that I've conditioned when that whistle goes off, Um, the dog will literally stop whatever they're doing. We found this, interestingly enough, to be really helpful with dogs that get too aroused in a yard playing together, that if you condition a whistle recall this way, you start being able to help them interrupt their play before it escalates. And the dogs come over, they get their rewards, and they go off playing again, assuming you don't have resource guarding. So this can work really well in situations like this where... A whistle is a much much um, sharper, different sound. So there's a decent chance that if his hearing is going, if he maybe has some cognitive stuff going on, that it's that one usually will cut through for a good long time. Until a dog is really stone deaf, they will often hear in that frequency range. And she, if she doesn't like the toot, like if she doesn't like the sound of the whistle, get a dog whistle that's silent. Um, 
it, which is a misnomer, but they're silent-ish. But again, it's going to move it into a different frequency range, which may be a frequency range the dog is better able to notice and hear, even, you know, when it's DEFCON 1, there's a stranger walking toward us. Right. Well, it's interesting you should mention whistles. I had I did that with a client and um, her husband, uh, I was working with both of them, bought her a uh, uh, like a, a little fashion whistle. It was a long, slender thing and it had a great sound and it was really pretty as a necklace. So she didn't mind wearing it. Um, you know, she had it on all the time. So she always had her whistle with us, with her. So I thought that was very clever of him and, and she really loved it. But the one thing I would also say about whistles, this is an aside, the only place where metal whistles are made in the United States is in the Whistle Factory in Columbus, Ohio. All other metal whistles, if there are any made, are made outside the United States. And the Whistle Factory here in Columbus, Ohio, makes all the official whistles for the Super Bowl. So there you go. Well, there's our there whistle trivia for today. That's right. So when I go visit Lynn, I'll have to bring her a true, genuine Ohio-made metal whistle. So there you go. Um, I think those are all great suggestions. And they sound a little more complicated, but I think if you just take a step back and realize, wait a minute, that's not that hard. Blow a whistle, throw some treats. I can do this. Blow a whistle, throw some treats. I have, I just looked over at my shelf and in my jar full of clickers, I have clicker whistles. So it's a clicker and a whistle. So Manny has been clicker trained. So that might be something I could take to Lynn, although it's not made in the United States because it is plastic. It's not made of metal. But anyway. So Athens, Georgia is a big college town. It's also a giant retirement community. And so I do get customers that trying to, their timing's not improving, right? So I, I use a softer marker in that it's not so distinct because if their timing's off, it won't matter as much, if that makes sense, right? If I click the moment the dog starts barking at the other dog, because I'm a little bit slow neurologically, which I am, I'm actually marking that I want the dog, like now the dog thinks I want the barking. So when I start getting into customers who maybe their timing isn't great, we tend to use cushier, soft-sided Nerf versions of marker cues so that it's not as distinct, so that it takes more time, so that there's a better chance that we're not marking the barking. Now, to be clear, I've totally, when somebody's got good timing, I've totally played a game of like, let's mark the bark and and free shape that down to a mutter, and now we're good. Um, and we have so if you can help her, Julie, we have had good luck with a dog that we taught him to alert us when he sees something that bothers him with a nose touch, which he did. He doesn't bark when he's focused on where his nose is going to go. So if your cousin is willing to let you tune up the skills and teach the dog and then transfer the skill, that's one that in my experience takes like only a few minutes. And the dogs are like, oh, thank goodness. Now at least I know what to do. So why don't can you go over the protocol real quick? So if somebody wants to try that, they have at least a sure. little bit of a protocol yeah, yeah, to follow. Yeah. So uh, take your rings off or you're going to get hot dogs stuck in them. It's a PSA. Um, you put a piece of cheese or hot dog where your fingers meet your palm on your hand. And you invite your dog to sniff that piece of food when they touch your hand. So you can have your eyes closed. Like if your timing's bad, like mine, I have to close my eyes. Dog touches, I either mark with a yay 
or I mark with a click and then I toss a different piece of hot dog or cheese away. I do that four times in a row and starting with repetition five, there is now not cheese in my hand. And so I start using that. Um, Suzanne Clothier has an exercise called polite puppy poker, where once I teach a dog a nose touch, I use polite puppy poker. So it might be that every day on every Tuesday, anytime the dog needs use of my thumbs, they have to offer a nose touch. I So I'm adding it into real life scenario that if you want to do something, nose touch, if you want the paper towel tube, nose touch, would you like your food? Nose touch. Would you like to go out the door? Nose touch. Would you like to get out of the car? Nose touch. Would you like your leash on? Nose touch. Would you like to get on the sofa? Nose touch. So just one day a week, nose touch is the name of the game. The next day it might be a down. Who knows? And then to to attach the cue of doing the sequencing of seeing a dog or seeing a person, if you have a signal for the touch that's strong, then... I often will use Leslie McDivitt's, hey, could you look at that over there? And when the dog looks, I go touch and I pay him. So they very quickly go, I need if I need to let you know about the dog, I'm going to touch your hand. A nice side effect of this is it usually moves the dog closer to the handler. So if the handler has a tendency to have a tight leash, it takes pressure off whatever their harness or collaring system is. And I will say I see lots of adult women with very, very tight leashes on dogs who bark. And that alone will make the barking worse. So if the person has a balance issue, if they're worried that their hands aren't strong, if they're worried that the dog is too strong, I strongly encourage a waist leash so that they stop pulling on their dog because it'll build the reactivity that they're trying to mitigate. Those are very good suggestions. And when you were talking about teaching target, I I would teach it very, I called it target or touch. Um, I taught it in a really similar fashion. I didn't stick the food between my fingers. I think that's kind of cool. Um, I would just hold it in place with my thumb and then touch my okay. hand. So I think, I, think, um, every, I think every trainer has something that's similar to that. There's just slight modifications in, in the protocol for teaching it. And I remember when I was teaching... Um, a couple of clients how to teach the dog to go to mat or go to bed. Um, mm-hmm. I would teach them my way, but then I always hand them a couple different handouts from like the whole dog journal and say, look, I, my, my ego is not such that you must use my way. And here are a couple other ways. Just read through it. If this makes more sense to you and it's more comfortable, I don't have a problem with you doing it. A, you know, in a, in a slightly different way that works for you. But I mean, with the caveat that we're not adding force into this, that's why I would always hand them, you know, positive uh, training methods. But it's, it's, I think it's always interesting, at least for me, to hear how other trainers train the same thing that I do, because I always want to find new ways in which I can approach a, a client and say, look, Okay, you're not getting what I'm saying. So let's try Tina's method because maybe that'll make more sense to you. Or let's try Susan Clothier's or Pat Miller's or, you know, you know, whomever. And there's lots of ways to get there, right? There's lots of ways to get there. Some dogs like luring. Some dogs are better with free shaping. Some dogs are better with modeling. Some dogs are better watching another dog and going, that's what you're getting at? Okay. Um, so other things that I've used for dogs who do this barking, um, 
I have had a stuffed frozen Kong with whatever the dog thinks is the best thing ever. And the handler just holds that. And when they see a dog or a person, they offer a dog a slurp on the Kong. We've had that work very well. Um, that was actually one that we did for a handler that had significant mobility issues um, and was actually in a wheelchair. So the dog, we attached a bell, a sleeve with a bell, a hair scrunchie with a bell on it to the Kong so that when the handler moved the Kong, the dog heard that that was moving. I have taught a dog. <laughs> so I taught a dog to stick its nose in a traffic cone, like a small, like little kid soccer traffic cone. Um, because then he can't see the other dogs and people and they can walk by, <laughs> which we just called the behavior big bird. It's kind of like him sticking his head in a bucket, but he totally is willing to go for a walk. And if something scary happens, he shoves his face in the cone, which, okay, weirdo. Yeah, you, you, you got to work with, with the dog that you have. That's one of the things I tell yeah. people is like, let's talk about the dog you have, not the dog right. you wish you had, which so, we might so be this, able to get him there. But but let's talk about who we dealing with right now. Yeah. So this is a dog who likes to stick his snoot in all the holes. So that was something he thought was funny. So we just did it with a cone. And then I think we started with like a yogurt container. And then, and she eventually, she just carries this lightweight traffic cone. And when he's nervous, he sticks his face in it and they walk. And when he feels more confident, he takes his head out and then he keeps walking. But it stopped the barking, right? He had a way to say, like, I, I'm uncomfortable that his owner could respond to and say, okay, good job. We're going to go this way. So I will also say this to your cousin. When, I don't care who you are. When your dog is barking, it is the loudest, most obnoxious bark that has ever been heard. And we feel awful about it. And every single human feels that way, right? Whether it's my dog barking or your dog barking or Clementine barking, it is the biggest, most obnoxious, most fearsome, awful thing that has ever happened. And the reality is nobody cares. Not really. Not really. Like dogs bark. Yeah, that, that's, you know, it's funny, because I think it, it's really interesting to get a, a different perspective on your dog. Like, when I went to the to her condo this weekend to write, um, my writing partner, Laura, came up and spent part of the weekend there, too. And I had Zuzu, because Lynn is cool about me bringing Zuzu. So, um, and Zuzu is just really good. Like, today when I'm writing, Clemmy's in the chair, and Zuzu's under my chair, and they're my writing buddies. And Zuzu just settles down next to me when I write. And Laura's like, Holy cow! She, like she's got Danes, and it's like they're just settled down. They're not. She's not doing anything. She's just right there with you, and and uh, she's quiet. And I just suddenly realized, wow. Sometimes you just need somebody else to observe, and you think, yeah, I have a great dog. You know, my dog Zuzu has her own idiosyncrasies and odd moments in life. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And Clementine, we all know, has her moments. She's but gonna have her own book. yeah, but you know what? Sometimes it's it just takes somebody saying something to realize, wow. Overall, I have a wonderful dog, and so we have this problem. But maybe we can do something to, to at least modify it so it's not quite the problem that I see it to be. So I know people hate to do it, but once they do it, it works really well. The whole pie in the face method, right? Dog starts to bark and you just pelt him in the face with 16 pieces of cheese. 
they're like, what? Cheese? <laughs> and it stops the barking. It feels completely wrong. Every single handler is like, if you do that, you're rewarding them for barking. Well, guess what? They can't bark and swallow at the same time. And I know that's true. So no, I'm not. I'm if you get to the point that you can preempt the behavior that when the dog goes, <gasps> you're tossing cheese, you've got them. Like you've got them over a barrel and it goes away really quickly. But again, my experience, at least in my life is as I'm aging, my timing's getting worse. So I have to randomly pie in the face the dog <laughs> so that they're like, they're loaded. They know that pie in the face will occur on this walk. And then when we see what, you know, the possum that is obviously the worst possum in the whole world, and my dog has to let everybody know about it, I can pie in the face them and they're like already ready to be receptive of that response. And, and that works pretty well. So it's, each dog is going to be a, a little bit different. What I would, I would anticipate that your cousin has a tight leash and it's tighter than she realizes um, and that she's more tense than she realizes. And all of that is maybe telling the dog that it doesn't feel safe to her and he's trying to take good care of his mom. So he might be overstating his case a little bit. Yeah, I th I think that's right. It's been a while since I walked Lynn with with Manny. Um so like I said I'm going to see her in a few weeks. So I will send her some information and then try and help her to fine tune it when I get up there. Well, and one of the interesting things is always to see like if you switch handlers does the dog's behavior change? Which is really interesting. Like I have seen time and time again like in a, like even in puppy class, we're like, okay, switch. Like if we have two, two families, we're like switch puppies for this exercise. Right. Cause it's good socialization too. Well, guess what? Everyone softens when it's not their dog. <laughs> right. And they usually walk away from the experience with a stronger appreciation of the puppy that's theirs. Right. Cause that one at least fits a little bit better, but it's, it's really interesting to see the puppy that's bouncing and lunging and barking on the end of a leash with their mom that when we hand them to someone else in class who has a high, usually a higher reinforcement rate and is being super soft with them because it's not their puppy, they're not exasperated with that puppy, all of a sudden the puppy settles down and is doing what we want it to do. Right. Well, you know, we see it with our kids. Um, you know, my, my mom was always sort of stunned. I remember when I was in, in a freshman in high school and my homeroom teacher told my mother, you know, what a what a quiet, you know, individual I was where my mother's like Julie quiet I mean just I'm like yeah well you know something um when I'm in a new situation or I'm in a different situation I am not necessarily going to let the full fudge out you know it's just <laughs> and I think our dogs in some ways are the same way that I'm being handled by another handler I'm not well except Clementine would be but I mean I'm not going to be the full Clementine I'm not going to give it my all because I'm not sure about you. So, I mean, I think that's helpful, but I think it also helps to reiterate to us that if our dog can be different with other people, then they probably can be different with us if I'm different. And that if I'm doing the same thing, this is, you know, whole insanity thing. If I'm doing the same thing over and over again and things are not getting better with my dog, then that's probably telling me that something has to change. Something has to be different. And if I want them to be different, then I need to be different. And seeing how my dog is different with somebody else 
may give me some clues to what I need to do. So, I mean, an old horsemanship trick was to sing. Like if you feel the horse getting tense, if you feel yourself getting tense, sing. And the reason why it could be happy birthday to you. It doesn't matter what you sing, but you're controlling your breathing, which changes your blood pressure, which tells the animal like, no, everything's fine. So you would, I could feel if I was riding cookie monster that she would start to get, you know, it's mares. Mares are special. Um, she'd start getting herself all angsty. And if I started to sing, she, she'd move her ears around like I was a nut job, but then settle in. And all of a sudden I could feel her breathing change, her body relax. Now, instead of thinking about how she's going to bite the mare in front of her or kick the mare behind her, she's focused on like, what is this goofball sitting on my back doing? And my body language was like, everything's fine. And we're having fun in the sun and we're, we're doing this cool thing together. And it's going to be awesome. I used to sing at her through jumpers courses because she would focus on the cues I was giving her a little bit better if I was singing in her ear a little bit. So I would say, like, are you relaxed on the walk? How do you feel when you see other dogs and other people? Is your response like, oh, good, there's Mildred from down the block. I've been meaning to say hello to her. Are you like, oh, no, here comes Mildred? Because that's all going to matter, too. Right. Well, when you were talking about horsemanship, uh, I had a, a horse instructor tell my daughters once, quiet hands, busy feet. And so I tell my owners that sometimes too, is that if you quiet your hands and you quiet the leash, you're not sending all these signals down the leash. And then you move your feet, right? You move your feet on the walk, but you keep your hands quiet. So quiet hands, busy feet. And that's done a lot. And and what I find is that if people quiet their hands, they tend to go, <sighs> right. So I, I get the energy out from walking, but if I quiet my hands, my whole upper body tends to be quiet and that gets translated right down the leash to the dog. Yeah. So again, I think, um, your sweet cousin has an awful lot on her plate and I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm criticizing her. I'm not. There's lots of times myself included that if I video myself, what I'm doing, I'm like, Oh, for goodness sakes, what is going on there? I'm a hot mess where I didn't realize I was doing something I was doing right? Um, Christopher is noticing that I'm standing differently since surgery. And it's that I'm guarding the part of my body that has, has an injury and is healing. So I'm carrying more tension on that side of my body. So he just mentioned it so that I can be a little bit more cognizant of like, push that shoulder down and it'll be okay. And I don't need to be all tight over there. I will say as much as I hate videoing myself and then going back and looking at it because I see every single error and I I'm like, I'm awful at this. I should go work at the post office. Um, the It does help you clarify, you know, what, how, what we're doing may or may not be contributing to what may be going on with the dog. Right. Well, when you said that, I was thinking, yeah, there are times I'm thinking, you know what? I should just go back to my high school job as a fry cook because, you know. <laughs> I used to do, um, there's a little specialty chain of hamburger places in, in Grand Rapids called Fables for all of you who are in Michigan. Um, and I was the onion ring cook in the back. <laughs> and I was nice. Like, yeah. You know, sometimes I think that that's what I'm qualified to do is, is I can make onion rings. And then when I was in college, I worked for the food service. And one time they had me make 120 portions of liver and onions. If you think I've gotten anywhere near liver since then, no, I have not. 
So anyway, that's, yeah, I had, I've had some interesting, um, what we say, food service experiences, shall we say. Yeah. So I kind of find food in general kind of gross. So yeah, that I've never worked in food service because I don't think I would like it. I was also a waitress in a discotheque. Did I ever tell you that? Yeah. No. When I was in college, yeah, I've had some interesting jobs. I was a waitress in a discotheque. And uh, we worked at the Kalamazoo Hilton. The giraffe discotheque was in the basement of the Hilton. And everybody who worked in the Hilton had their first name on their name tag and then their department underneath it, except for the bartenders, because they would rotate between all the bars. But if you were like in front desk, it would say, you know, uh, Tina front desk, right? Well, I worked in the disco. So I was Julie Disco, and there was Leslie Disco and Peggy Disco. (laughs) I still have my Julie Disco name tag somewhere. All right. Well, I think basically what we've said here, in just to do a quick reiteration, is that if your dog is barking, um, try not to see it as the end of the world or the worst thing on the planet, because it's probably not. And that there are things that you can do that aren't all that difficult to get your dog to either minimize the amount of barking leave off and turn to you. Teach him to touch your hand. Teach him how to do, look for a scatter on the ground so that the signal, whoopsie, or there's a dog, or let's first the quiet. party. <laughs> let's, let's party um, means I'm going to look down and start sniffling for treats. So I think the thing is to remember is that this is all stuff that needs to be practiced well, practiced a lot outside of the emer- the the nine one one situation where you see the dog coming down the street. So, and if you have any questions, find yourself a good positive reinforcement trainer. Send us an email on feedback at yourfamilydog.com. No, yourfamilydogpodcast.com. Sorry, and um, at your family. Yeah, feedback at yourfamilydogpodcast.com. Yeah. Anyway. It, It'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. It will be in the show notes. Are you okay with me doing a public service announcement of encouraging the women who are listening to go get their mammogram? I am fine with that because I, because we, one of the reasons I got my mammogram lately and it came out normal. Thank you. Was because of you. So y'all may not know this. I was diagnosed with stage zero. um, Very, very treatable, very, very uh, curable. DCIS, um, breast cancer off of a routine screaming, screening, not screaming. There might've been screaming, screening mammogram. So I'm, you know, a mammogram has saved my life. Um, and I just am gonna, I mean, this is not a fun journey by any stretch. I would have preferred to avoid it, but, uh, I'm getting off relatively lightly on this whole breast cancer thing. So Please go get your mammogram, get your mom to get her mammogram, get your sisters to get their mammograms, get your mammogram. Um, when they find it on a mammogram, often you are able to avoid avoidable suffering and you're important to the world. So make the appointment and go. And if you need us to come up with a buddy system for you, we'll do it. It's not as bad as you think it is. And we love you enough to say, get your mammogram. Very good. I agree. And because it was, I was going to say that not only you, but I had another friend who I had coffee with who told me she had just been diagnosed with, or she had been diagnosed with uh, cancer, breast cancer, and she had to have a double mastectomy. So things are a little bit more challenging for her. Um, But she has a great attitude towards the whole thing. She goes, I don't need them. Take them. (laughs) But um, (laughs) 
But uh, so it was it was one of these. Okay, I think that this is pretty clear to me that I need to stop putting off taking my mammogram this year and just get it done, which I did. So. Well, I will say every single appointment I go to, they're like, have you had your colonoscopy yet? And I'm like, can we solve this first? (laughs) Like, can we do that other part? Like, I don't know, in a couple of months, maybe. So at some point, I'll probably be yelling at y'all to get your colonoscopy. Well, I can yell at them to get the colonoscopy because I've had colonoscopies. And I will tell you, I had one and they found a couple of polyps and and they were able to remove them. And I have had no residual effects. And if I hadn't been on top of having my colonoscopy... I might not be able to say that. So I would say women of a certain age, there are certain things you just got to do. So, you know, bite the bullet and just. And it might be your mom, like get your mom in the car, get, get your mom to schedule, get your grandmother to schedule. You know, we're all important to this world. And it's funny how they can, they can find little things. Like I, I am, I'm an extraordinarily healthy individual. I mean, I power lift three times a week and I go curling two to three times a week and I go hiking and do all this stuff. And I'm, I'm in very good shape. But a couple of years ago, I did have pneumonia. And the follow-up x-ray to my pneumonia showed that I had calcium deposits in one of my arteries. So I'm now seeing a cardiologist. And thank goodness when they had that, that I had the follow-up because I don't have any symptoms of cardiac disease. And part of the reason why is because we caught it and we're dealing with it. So do your follow-ups. You know, if they ask you to follow up for a particular thing, do it because you never know what might come up that could save your life. So there you go. Right. You're important. So make the time. You'd make the time for someone else. You'd make the vet appointment. Make the time. Go and take care of yourself so that we can love you longer. And you can listen longer to your family dog, which we hope you will subscribe to. (laughs) So either on wherever it is you get your podcast, please press that uh, follow or subscribe button. It means a lot to us if you do that. And it does help other people to find our podcast and maybe get their mammogram too. So. Yeah. And train their dog to not bark. So, I mean, what more can you ask for? You know, all these, all these things in one. So, all right, then we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.